Well, last week um, I was uh, in Jacksonville. Tracy was with me at uh, one of the uh, expositor campuses down there, Grace Community. With uh, and um, Tracy did a women's conference on Saturday, and I taught uh, the men preparing for ministry, and then preached on on Sunday. And I got to do something that I always wanted to do because the ladies heard uh, heard Tracy before me. I got to introduce myself on Sunday morning as, "Hi, I'm Tracy Farrell's husband." You know, normally, whenever, you know, the, you get like, this is Pastor Brian and his wife. You know what I mean? You, you, you ladies who've, who, have, uh, who have been in that position understand uh, what I'm saying. They also heard our testimony, um, which included uh, how big of a jerk I was before I came to Christ. So I made sure I reminded them of 2 Corinthians 5:17 before I preached. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation, which is a wonderful, wonderful truth. But when Pastor Justin called uh, a number of months ago and asked if uh, asked I would be willing to come, or we'd be willing to come, um, he said something I understood uh, all too well. He said, it, it's hard to find people to, to teach that you trust from outside of your congregation. Now, we're blessed. Here, we're blessed with a, with a, a number of faithful expositors and, and Bible teachers um, there's never a lack of, of some able person to be able to step into the pulpit or in a, or in a, a Sunday school class, um, and that's a blessing. And on the flip side, from a, from a congregation or a Sunday school, um, you know, it, it's, from your all standpoint, it's, it's not who the person is, it's are they bringing the Word, are they teaching the Word of God, because that's the main thing. It's not the person, but it's the, uh, it's the truth, and... And I guess as a pastor, you know, he's got the responsibility for the teaching of the church. He gives an account for, for whatever comes from, from the pulpit and is accountable before God for the, for the people um, charged to his care. And, and I was just thinking about that just while, while, while Pastor Justin's thinking about the responsibility for the sheep and who would be faithful to the word. Those are not typical evaluators that, that we use whenever we're trying to determine whether we listen to a speaker or not. Um, you know, frankly, whenever I turn on the radio uh, or listen to a teacher, maybe even this morning as you begin to listen to me, my natural inclination is not to decide whether I want to listen uh, based upon immediately... Uh, the responsibility for the sheep and and whether they're going to be faithful to the word. I mean, that's in the back of my mind. I'm not going to going to intentionally sit under a heretic, but 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 really, the 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 natural evaluator is is how interesting are they? Do they grab my attention? How well can they hold my attention? And and, and of course, God doesn't advocate, nor should you seek out, intentionally boring people, right? I mean, God could have uh, you know, declared preaching and teaching. He could have ordained that it happened any number of ways. But he's chosen to pour through human vessels. And there's a, there is a human component. There's a, there's a connection that, that happens um, between, between people. But great orators... Is, is not what the church needs. What the church needs is men who will tell others the, the word of a, of a great God, right? 
Glenn Matthews, a, a man that you've met, I think he's the first person I ever brought to Timberlake to as a as a guest speaker, and I felt that same pressure that you know the Pastor Justin, you know, felt. And he he was a he was a man used greatly of the Lord um, in my early walk with with Christ, and and he drove this point that that I'm that I'm I'm starting with. He drove it home in in a very humbling humbling way. Now Glenn's. 75 plus years old, and and he's a third generation evangelist, and he's he's traveled all over the place. He's he's seen a lot of a lot of changes uh, in the church, a lot of changes um, uh, over generations. He's also been in a lot of different a lot of different congregations. Preached on every continent except Antarctica. Physically driven over three million miles in a car in a vehicle, preaching the gospel across the across the U.S. and and in a in a, in a in a one of these down times when 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 we were talking we were talking about pastoring and he said you know Brian pastors today have it much much different than days prior to radio TV digital media MP3 players it used to be and you 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 know this you a number of you experienced it. it used to be a congregation heard a total of two preachers a year right they heard their pastor and whoever they brought in for the spring or fall revival. And a lot of times it was the same guy. The one who came in the spring is the, is the same person who came back in the, you know, in the fall. And, and we know what to say. Today, your congregation has the best preachers in the world to compare you with. And they're, they're, they're all instantly available at their fingertips. And with the Internet, there's an unlimited number that, that are out there. And then he paused. He said, the scales of comparison are not in your favor. And he was right. Um, he was right about the results of the comparison. And he was also right about the, the plethora of voices that are out there. I mean, just, just consider for a moment how many different preachers or teachers you personally have listened to in the past year. Different ones. Include radio, include who you've got on your podcast include who you've heard from our pulpit, 20, 30, you know, maybe more. What about in your lifetime? How many have you, have you sat under? All of them, more than likely, if you're listening on the radio or otherwise, they're, they're well-prepared and well-polished. Uh, in the digital world, only home-run sermons make it on the, you know, on the radio. I mean, they pay people to specifically... Do that. Editors, good editors, take out the ums and the, you know, the rabbits that that are that are chased and and usually never shot. Whenever a preacher takes after one, I mean, it's really it's not a real life comparison. I mean, I, I described it. It's kind of like the you know the preacher version of uh, you know the TV supermodels where where the final picture is photoshopped and it's digitally enhanced. And then you get that image, and, and you think about how our, our young people, our, our young ladies, or even older ladies struggle with this, this body image because everything is presented in this, in this perfect, polished, digitalized format. Now, I think besides being helpfully humbling to any preacher to realize that, that level of comparison, I think it also implies an unstated danger for you as a listener, for me as a listener, 
to the extent that I listen to, to other people. Now, I mean, no one in here, I don't believe anyone in here is of the opinion that, that eloquence has the power to bring the dead to life. I mean, you know that theologically. You know that, it's, that the power is, is in the gospel. But, but without realizing it, uh, you can begin to compare. You can begin to compare me or, or your Sunday school teacher or, or, or anyone else that, that, that's in a teaching capacity in the church. You can begin to compare those to other voices and without even realizing it, gain some unrealistic and very dangerous expectations. Um, people can begin to expect their, their pastor or their Sunday school teacher to have the voice of Adrian Rogers, the depth of John MacArthur, the passion of David Platt, the humor of Chuck Swindoll, and the results of Billy Graham all rolled into one. I mean, don't get me wrong, I mean, I think that we are blessed today, um, you know, probably in a way that, that's unparalleled in church history. I mean, the access that we have to faithful Bible preaching and teaching is, is like no other. I, I mean, you can go out and men that have stood by the stuff for years, you can go on the Internet and you can download more sermons than you could listen to if you started whenever you left church until the cows came home. And that, that's a blessing to have that, that, that level of, uh, of access. But it's also a danger. It's easy to compare. It's easy to want your teachers to, to be more like them or sound more like them or have an expectation that, that every Sunday school lesson you listen to unless it doesn't just absolutely fit the, you know, the perfect mold of whoever your favorite Bible teacher is, or it doesn't have enough illustrations, or it doesn't have this, or it doesn't have that, you can see how that could get you into trouble. I mean, besides putting great pressure on, on whoever you typically listen to, it's also distracting to you. Because it's not about the person, it's about God speaking through His Word. And, and whoever that faithful individual is that's sharing the Word with you is just a vessel. And you can get so distracted about the vessel, you miss the content you know, that's, that, that's there. And you include into that a, you know, a never-ending stream of books that just continually pump out week after week, the right way to do church, the right way to raise your kids, the right way to do this, the right way to that. And sometimes they even put God's way to, to do that. And, and you can get very disillusioned. You can get very disillusioned in your own context. You can get very disillusioned in your Christianity. I mean, wow. Some of those things are there to help you. But in reality, it can, it can paint expectations that you'll never be able to live up to. And so then you wait for the next new and improved book to come out. A.W. Tozer, in a sermon on the potential error of loving the personality of, of preachers, said this, I'm against the idea of putting the big preachers on tape and playing them back to the congregations that feel like they're being starved by listening to the little preachers. That is a fallacy, brethren, a thousand times fallacy. If we could have the Apostle Paul on tape and play it here today, he could do no more for you than the Holy Spirit can do with the book and the human conscience. 
You believe that? The Apostle Paul's a vessel. Tozer's right. The Apostle Paul did not take a Dale Carnegie course to get prepared for his public speaking ministry. The ability to be cast on a popular infomercial would not have been a prerequisite that, that Paul looked for whenever he chose Timothy or Titus or whoever it might be. And yet there are a few things that are, that are held in, in higher esteem in many circles than eloquence. And I don't, I'm not just talking about today. It's in Paul's day. Corinth should come to mind, right? And yet there are fewer things less valuable than eloquence if trusted in. In fact, if you go to Corinth, Paul says that you can actually empty the cross of its power if you trust in that. The personality, it's clearly there. It's given by God. It's to be used and, and submitted to the Lordship of Christ, but, but you have to be careful with that. The fallacy that, that what you need in, in any teacher, you know, is, a, is someone with good looks and stage savvy and easy to listen to is, is, a, is a bill of goods. Um, our focus has to be on, not on the one preaching, but on the one he preaches and the content of the truth. And whatever there is in preachers or, or teachers, it must make much of Christ and little of them. So I want you to open your Bibles to James chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. If you were fortunate enough to come to church on Wednesday night, you got a brief introduction to this. And we're going to look at the first two verses, James chapter 3, verses 1 and, and 2. And this is the beginning of the passage about taming the tongue, or I should say the impossibility of taming the tongue. And James starts with the tongues that can do more damage than any other. It's the, it's the tongues of a teacher, an official teacher in the church. And he gives a warning. Now, if you're preparing for ministry, if you're preparing for a teacher's role, if you're in TES or you're getting ready to, to graduate or you're considering teaching in some capacity or if you already are a teacher from Sunday school down to children to obviously those who are in the pulpit, pay close attention to what James is going to say because he's talking to you. But if you're someone who sits under teaching, this is not just a message for preachers or teachers or somebody thinking about ministry. There are there are very important implications that are directed to you, you who listen. If you're somebody who sits under teaching, and if you're a Christian, you are, I want you to note these as some guidelines for the kinds of teachers that we should listen to, and then how you should respond to those teachers. So let's read and see what James says here. James chapter 3, verse 1. He says, My brethren, so he's obviously talking to believers, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter or greater judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. If any one does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. Now you could go on and, and read the rest of the, the chapter about about the tongue, and he doesn't just apply it to teachers there, but he, he applies it to, to, every, to every one of us. 
But in these first two verses, as he introduces and, and he, he puts teachers up front in this issue with the tongue, he, he, he's talking to us who, who, as we're enticed and bombarded with, with many voices out there, and he's going to give you three characteristics that you should look for in a, in a Bible teacher. Or you should have, obviously, if you, if you are one. And the first one is that he says, become a teacher, that is, or listen to teachers who are filled with, filled with fear. Verse 1. He says, my brethren, let not many of you become teachers knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. This is the third reference that James has made about the tongue. And he's getting ready to launch into the largest teaching on the topic in, in his letter. In, in chapter 1, verse 19, he says, Be slow to speak. Put your hand over your mouth. All talking about the, the Word of God in the context there. That's the big doers of the Word and not hearers only. You're to be slow to speak. Chapter 2, verse 12, he says, So speak and so do as those who are judged by the law of liberty. Chapter 2, verse 12. Chapter 1, verse 26, the verse everybody knows, he talks about a man's religion or a person's religion is vain or empty, and it's deceptive if he doesn't know how to bridle his tongue. Why do you think James uses the tongue? We talked about this on Wednesday night. It's because the tongue is one of the most effective evaluators of a person's soul. The tongue? You know, I mean, you go to the doctor, and it used to be they stuck that little popsicle stick in there and say, stick out your tongue and say, ah. And they looked at your throat. Well, James says, stick out your tongue, and I, will, I, I want to look at your soul. I don't want to look to see if you have a sore throat. I want to look to see the condition of your heart. Because Jesus said, what is in your heart, you'll eventually find on your tongue. What's inside will ultimately come out. And Jesus uses other examples about you will know a tree by its fruit. What you produce in your life is an indication of whether you're regenerate or not. It's an indication of what's inside. And the tongue is one of the best indicators of a person's, of a person's heart. Many areas you might be able to cover up, but you won't be able to cover up your tongue all of the time. It, it, it gets loose. I mean, you've heard the statement, God gave you, you know, two ears and one mouth for a reason. Well, he, he even put a fencing. He put a guard here to keep that thing in there, but it doesn't stay in there all the time, does it? Well, where it's a big muscle, but where's that muscle connected to? James says it's connected to your heart. So he uses it as an indicator. And that's what he's saying. And he says here, let not many of you become teachers. It, 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 it has the idea of don't swell to the rank of a teacher. Now, the word that he uses here for teacher is didaskalos. It means a master in the Gospels. It's a recognized teacher in the church. This is a person who has an official position. Now, obviously, that indicates somebody behind the pulpit that does this on a regular basis, but it doesn't stop there. It's anyone who has an official teaching position in the church. It's, it's a Sunday school teacher. It's a teacher of a home Bible study. It's a, it's a teacher in a youth class. It's a recognized teacher in the congregation. And James says, don't rush into the teaching office. 
And I think by implication for you, don't rush to listen to people who do. Don't rush into the teaching office and don't rush to listen to people who do. I mean, we love new and improved, don't we? I mean, they won't even change the formula or something. They'll just change the package and put new on it. And, and, and we like it. There's something about youth and there's something about zeal that is a very, very good thing. It, it, it prompts us along and it kicks us out of the doldrums at times. But the Bible says, you know, zeal without knowledge is, can be a dangerous thing. and There has to be a balance that's, that's there. And James says don't rush. That seems kind of strange, doesn't it? And now think about it. This is a church leader. This is a teacher of the Bible. This is, this is a man who wants to get the Word of God out. So somebody who wants to see people saved. Obviously, it's James. This is a church leader, a teacher of the Bible, who says, don't desire to be a teacher of God's Word. Does that sound kind of odd? I mean, wouldn't you think that James would want as many people as possible preaching the gospel? I mean, wouldn't you think that more teachers would be better? Not necessarily. And he's going to tell us why in a minute. I can remember my days at Eagle Irie. You know, a bunch of different denominations would come through up there, and they'd rent the facilities and pay for it. And one in particular came just about every year, and it was a, it was a conference put on specifically to recruit ministers. And it was a... It was, I mean, the purpose behind it was they're, they're seeing the ranks in this specific denomination, people not wanting to go into ministry. Students, people, young people not wanting to go into ministry, you know? Uh, uh, low pay, high stress, and you're a sinner, and everybody else that you have to deal with is a sinner. Sign here, right? I mean, who wants to sign up for that job unless you're called by God? So, that, so there, how do we fix this problem? They come up with conferences, and the conference is to try to convince young people to choose ministry just like any other vocation. And it wasn't like, if you feel called to ministry, come, and we'll try to confirm you or talk to you. It's come one, come all. I can remember sitting there listening to the denominational leaders saying, look, you don't even have to feel called of God to do this. Just do it, and maybe the calling will, will come. And... I mean, they just treated it like any other vocation. You know, I never heard James 3, 1 and 2 used as a theme verse for, for that conference. I never, never, never heard. James says no one should even consider teaching without a deep sense of fear because of the seriousness of the, of the accountability. Now, James is not trying to discourage a person who is sincerely called by God to fulfill a task that's, that's given. He's just saying don't take it lightly. Don't rush into it because it's serious business. He tells us why. In the second half of that verse, don't sweat with the ranks of becoming a teacher, knowing that we shall receive a greater or stricter judgment. Greater is mega, where we get the word large. Now look at what it says. It's a greater judgment or a stricter judgment. It's a comparative adjective. It implies degrees of treatment at the judgment seat. There's a greater judgment, a stricter judgment at the judgment seat. James says a person 
who is in a teaching capacity in a church will incur a greater accountability because of the level of responsibility. Now, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 through 10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. He says, we'll all stand before the, before the judgment seat of Christ, and we will give an account for what was done in our bodies, for what we've done with our life, for what we've done for the Lord. And we'll give an account on that day for what we've done based upon our level of responsibilities. That you're not going to be held accountable for anything that you're not responsible for. And that's a freeing truth. It really is. If you're a wife, you're not going to be accountable before Christ on the judgment day for your husband. Now, maybe how you treated your husband as a, as a wife, but, but he will stand there. And you're not given account for him. If you're a parent, you may be accountable for your parenting, but, but on that day, you won't be accountable for your child's choices. God doesn't hold you accountable for things that you're not responsible for. If you're a church member, you're not going to be accountable on the day of judgment for, for your elders or for your pastors or, or for anything else. But on that day, you, me, and every other believer will be required to give an account for every ounce of responsibility entrusted to us. And those who proclaim the word of God James says we'll receive a greater judgment. Why is it a greater judgment? It's a greater judgment because there's a greater responsibility. I'm not going to be treated unequally. I'm not going to be treated differently. I'm not going to have greater scrutiny. I don't think what James is saying. What he's saying is the level of responsibility is equated to the level of, of judgment, and there's a great responsibility because of the position and the persuasion. He says this is a, a teacher. It's an official position in the, in the church. And then there's obviously persuasion that goes along with people who teach, who teach the Word of God. A teacher's primary position is a messenger. It's a messenger from God. Teachers present news, not commentary opinion, right? I mean, don't you get frustrated whenever you turn on the news and all you get is commentary opinion? Now, I don't mind the ones that tell you up front, this is commentary. I am, I am a Republican, and I'm going to give you a Republican perspective. I am national news media, and I'm going to give you a Democratic perspective. But news is fact. It's, it's what's already happened, and they're supposed to simply report it. And a teacher speaks words on, on behalf of God. I was telling them on Wednesday night, uh, I think one of the most stressful jobs on the planet is the press secretary of the, of the United States, regardless of who's in, who's in power. Because you get this, you get this guy or this, or this gal who comes out at a specific time, and there's a room full of... A room full of, of um, of uh, reporters there, and, and the 
the press secretary's job is to, is to give him information, and the reporter's job is to try to pick it apart and get information that he doesn't want to share. So they ask the question ten different ways. This is, a, this is very stressful. Um, and when they're quoted, when the press secretary is quoted later in, in the, on the evening news, let's say it's at 11 a.m., the press secretary it does his deal at 11 a.m., at 6 o'clock it's, it's quoted, the White House said. It, it doesn't say the press secretary said, although they may say, you know, the press secretary shares, but it's quoted as the White House said, because when he speaks, he speaks on behalf of the White House. He speaks as if the White House spoke. And a preacher is a messenger on behalf of God. A faithful one is supposed to speak the words of the Lord, the news, what's already accomplished, that's there. No, I'm not talking about you can't give illustrations or you can't, you know, apply it. I mean, I, I mean, there's the human personality that, that's involved. But the words of God is, those are what, what are primarily spoken. You know, 90% of the commands and directives the Bible gives concerning pastors or teachers relate to proclamation of the Word. It's huge, because that's one of their primary tasks. The Bible teacher's fundamental job is to accurately present the message and not his own, not his own ideas. We talked about this on Wednesday night, too. I mean, think about if you called a, a representative of a company say the Discover card, and you ask them a question. You want to know a question about your bill. There's a $25 charge on there, whatever it, whatever it might be. And you call up and ask a billing question, and the rep on the other line, you ask the question, and the rep says, well, I don't know what the company's position would be, but my opinion is. I mean, you would politely probably say, well, that's great, I'm, I'm happy for your opinion, but I, I want to know what my contract says. I mean, what, what's binding? What's authoritative? And you should have the same attitude with, with teachers. Gracious, obviously. James is going to say in just a minute, we're all frail and we fail in many ways. But oddly, I think people are very willing to give a pass to those who claim to speak on behalf of God. They say, well, you know, I mean, how, how can I know the Holy Spirit didn't tell them to say that? Well, it's really easy. Did the Bible say it or didn't the Bible say it? And if the Bible didn't say it, then the Holy Spirit didn't tell them to say it if they're saying this is what God said. The greater judgment because of the position and the power to persuade. We don't have time, but you can note in verse 9, James says that there's a power to bless and curse in the tongue. And a teacher can use his tongue to, to influence others, good or bad. Let me give you the second one. James says, become or listen to teachers who who know their own frailty. God-fearing teachers and sin-acknowledging teachers. Look at verse 2. My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a greater judgment, stricter judgment, for we all stumble in many ways. Notice that's an explanation of what he's just said. The word stumble means to offend or to, to sin, to falter. And James says that we... We are all sinful, and we don't just sin a, sin a little bit. We continually fall. We continually come up short. We regularly sin. In many things, we all stumble. Every one of us. 
is a literal way to state what James is is saying. Ain't it? His argument can't be mistaken. He says some of us must teach. All of us frequently fall. Teachers who fall are more severely judged than others. Therefore, do not many of you become teachers? I mean, that's his, that's his argument. Plain as day, right there in the text. And the Bible's full of warnings about ways that you can, teachers can sin. Uh, Jesus warned about those who preach but don't practice, right? James says, beware of men who preach but don't value what they say enough to do it themselves. They're teachers who sin by those who deepen the sinful condition of their listeners rather than help it. Jesus told the Pharisees, you make your followers twice the sons of hell as you are. You're a son of hell, and you make them twice the, the, the child of, of hell. There are those whose message, if followed, won't help you. It will lead you deeper into sin. Those who teach only what they can obey. Jesus told the Pharisees, you tithe on dill and, and cumin, but neglect the weightier matters of the law. There are those who teach what no one can obey. There are those who, Jesus said to the Pharisees, you put yokes on men, self-imposed standards that human beings come up with that violate 1 Corinthians 4, 6, don't exceed what is written. Be careful not to make principles and preferences into commands. There are those who teach only what people want to hear. Garner teachers who are, have itching ears. There are preachers who announce peace, peace. You're fine with God. God has a wonderful plan for your life. Your best life now, whatever it might be, and there is no peace. There's power in the tongue. Tongues are sinful. If you went to the the TCS musical, it echoed this point well. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me is one of the greatest fallacies ever coined into a proverb. The tongue can speak sinfully, erroneously, and a teacher must be aware of his own frailty. It doesn't say that you won't be frail. It says you've got to be aware of it. And so because you're aware you're a sinner and because you're aware that you're, a, you're, you're accountable based upon the responsibility of the position and the persuasion, don't rush into the office be filled with fear and be aware of your, of your own frailty and your sinful, your sinful condition. Because there's a greater judgment and there's a frailty in stumbling, he gives us the third characteristic. You should look for a Bible teacher with proven faithfulness. Look at what he says in verse 2. For we all stumble in many ways or in many things. If any does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, a complete man, able also to bridle the whole body. Sin-fearing, God-fearing, I should say, sin-acknowledging, and then, and then truth-submitting. And you follow this, this line of thought. He says, because the tongue has the capacity to cause others to stumble, you should not listen to anyone except those who are proven committed to the Word, those who exhibit faithfulness over their tongues. 
Now, we don't have time to go there, but if you would read the rest of James, listen to verse 9. No man can tame the tongue. I mean, in a few verses, he says it's impossible for you to tame your tongue. His whole point is you've got to submit it to God and allow God to tame it. But here, he says a person who is who doesn't stumble in word, is, is matured. He's able to bridle the whole body. That almost seems like he's contradicting himself. But he's not. He, the word perfect is, is used earlier in, in chapter 1, verse 4. And the teacher who heeds this warning, James is saying, will be mature in, in wielding his tongue. He's no longer a babe. I mean, I think that's what Paul's echoing to Timothy whenever he says an elder must not be a, not, must, must not be a novice, a newly planted sprout. A teacher has to be an adult in, in the control of his tongue. Proverbs 10.19. When there are many words, there is transgression, right? But he who restrains his lips is wise. Now, the New Living Translation, which I don't normally look at, so don't throw rocks at me, okay? Here's, here's the paraphrase of Romans 10.19. Too much talk leads to sin. Be sensible and keep your mouth shut. Man, that's a really good translation. Paraphrase, isn't it? Too much talk leads to sin. Be sensible and keep your mouth shut. That's pretty straightforward. But for teachers, that's impossible. You're commanded to use your mouth. You can't be a teacher and not use your mouth. You're commanded to speak. I've shared this with you before. I think it's been years ago. You know how many words a teacher speaks on a Sunday? The average person speaks about 110 words per minute. And public speaking is double that. You get about 10,000 words per service. 10,000 opportunities for mistakes, 10,000 opportunities for error, 10,000 opportunities to sound like a hick, 10,000 opportunities to get the grammar mixed up, dangle participles, choke adjectives, trump participles in the dirt. You grammarians out there that help me on a regular basis understand 10,000 opportunities you have to evaluate. It's a lot. Brethren, pray for your Sunday school teachers and your pastors and others. 10,000 opportunities to mislead. 10,000 opportunities to build you up in the Lord. So, I mean, the question that I have when I come here is, what does this mature mean? How can you have a mature tongue if it's impossible to tame it? And James will later say that, so because it's impossible, no person can tame the tongue you can sue the savage beast, but you can't tame the tongue. Only God can. How does that work? Or what does that look like as being a teacher? A mature tongue. A Bible teacher who has a mature tongue, who is mature in regards to his tongue, means someone who has learned to control his mouth so that he speaks only what God has said, not what he thinks himself. I think that's exactly what James means. A teacher that is mature is one that's filled with God's thoughts and not his own. That's why Paul instructed Timothy to commit truth to other faithful men, not perfect men, but faithful men, those who had already 
proven themselves serious and faithful with the truth so that they could teach others also. A mature person in regards to his tongue has learned to control his impulses, his thoughts, and to submit every one of them to the crucible of the Word of God for testing before he speaks. He's taking Colossians 3.16 seriously. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. Let the Word of Christ take up residence in you. Let it be at home in you. And when the Word is at home in your, heart, in your mind and in your heart, it will be what comes out of your tongue. And it will help restrain the tongue. Though we all stumble in many ways. I'm talking about a perfect tongue. So the teachers. Fearfield, sin acknowledging, and truth submitting. Now let me give you a list of five implications that I would jot down. How do you apply this in, in your life? Based upon what James says here, seek teachers who have these characteristics. Seek them. Listen to them. The next time you turn on the radio and a Bible teacher comes on there that you don't know, they may be good and they may not be good. I don't know. Listen for these characteristics. Does it sound, does it sound like that they, that they tremble at the Word of God? Do they sound like that they're, that they're anxious for you to hear all about them and what they're doing and what they've done? Or, or do you hear a fear knowing that they're speaking on behalf of another who they're going to stand before one day? Do you hear them acknowledge their own frailty? Are they aware of that? And do you hear the Word coming through regardless of how it is filtered through the personality? Number two. Pray for those that you find like that. Because James says, since stumbling in the Word is so easy, pray for me. Pray for your Sunday school. Pray for anyone handling the Word. Um, Pray. Number three, take special care of the faithful ones that you find. Um, whether it's here or otherwise. Number four, make it a joy for them to shepherd or to teach you. Uh, Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey them that have rule over you and, and submit yourselves, for they watch over your souls as they must give an account. But listen to what he says, That they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. To the extent that you're difficult to teach, you're difficult to shepherd in a Sunday school class or as a church member, that doesn't hurt your Sunday school teacher or your pastor. That hurts you to the extent that you're not a joy to do that. And number five, tremble at the Word of God with them. Because while teachers will give an account... For everything that they say, you will give an account for everything that you hear. Um, to the extent that it was faithful. Because we're, James says we're not to just be hearers of the Word, but we're to be doers also. So we tremble at the Word of God together. And as you know, whether you're a teacher or a listener, we're all under, all under the authority of the Bible and the authority of Christ. And we all stumble 
in many ways. Let's pray. Father, what a humbling reminder of of this truth. Lord, is this our opportunity to respond even now as we've got our heads bowed and we're considering what you have said to us this morning. Father, I know many that are in here considering missions or ministry, teaching. Some that are getting ready to graduate and be launched into that. Father, I pray that you would etch these truths onto their souls. I pray that there would never be a moment where there is not a terrifying fear of the living God mingled with the joyful pleasure of knowing that they're faithful to you when they speak your words. Father, I pray that they would never lose sight of the fact that they are frail and that no matter how hard they try, they will fumble. And Lord, I pray that you would fill them with your word, with your truth, so that that may help them restrain their tongues. Father, I pray for those of us who already teach. As you've reminded us of this truth this morning, help us to be ever mindful of it as we we prepare and as we, we shepherd. I pray, Father, for us as listeners that we would take care of who we place our families under and and even our own hearts and that you know, when we have people that teach us, um, we would make it a joy. Thank you for this church, Lord, that does that. Thank you for their honor, you through the Word. Father, I pray for for those here here this morning that are just listening and have really no idea how this applies or or what they're even we're even talking about because they don't know your Son Jesus Christ. They've never bowed the knee. They've never confessed him as Savior and Lord. I pray that that they would seek someone out, seek me out after the service, and and they would submit their soul to you. Lord, would you? Would you do this work? We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.